My name is Dirk Weiss. I'm on staff here, and I have the joy of digging into this passage today. Um, real quick, notice a sweet little mug I got. I got it as a gift, and I'm supposed to promote something, so I'll give it a couple minutes. So, uh, Midwestern Baptist Seminary in Kansas City is uh, starting to do free classes online um, for people in local churches who want to learn and be equipped. So, if you have any interest, you can let me know. I'm just going to drink coffee out of it right now. So, cool. Um, let me pray and we can get in this. Uh, Lord, help us see your goodness in us. We were just singing about your holiness. Help us see how that holiness does not stay contained, but it overwhelms and it consumes and brings broken people into your presence and heals them. So Lord, may we have joy this morning, hope in a time that is tumultuous, in a time where it's, it's easy to um, lack faith, it's easy to, to give in to weakness and to default into ways that, that do not glorify you. So Lord, would you stir up faith in this body today? The glory of your name. Amen. All right. So, today we have Isaiah 27. And so, for some of you, maybe this is your first time here, we've been covering the book of Isaiah for now, uh, for a few months. And so, it was really this thing where we got like two sermons in, and then the pandemic hit and lockdown. And it was crazy because we saw how almost every week was very applicable to what was in the news and what all of us were feeling in our community and internally. Uh, and so it continues now. And so what's been really cool about Isaiah is that it's a mix. Like there's chapters that are really heavy and God says some things that really challenge us, really challenge what we believe about ourselves and about the world and what does it mean to be his people. And then you also get, uh, as Donovan put it, some glimpses, a break in the clouds where you can see the sun and you can see the brightness, you can see his glory and you can experience his love. And so we're kind of in one of those passages today. And what God is doing in this chapter is he's, he's giving us this initial glimpse of eternity and then he's bringing it back to here and now on the earth and then at the very end, bringing it back to eternity. So it's kind of a little roller coaster for us. And so he starts off in this first section in the future. So in that day, meaning the last day. And he just goes straight into talking about Leviathan. And man, we don't have enough time for this today, but in essence, Leviathan is something that you can find obviously here in Isaiah, but then also in Psalms and the book of Job. And Leviathan is something described as in a couple ways, one being a supernatural evil. You can kind of tune into our series from last summer. We didn't really get into Leviathan itself, but into the Acts of War series, we talked about supernatural warfare, how this plays a very vital role in life today. Um, but Leviathan is also representing chaos, because Leviathan is connected to the sea. And what you see about the sea 
is that it's in contrast with land. And what you see throughout Scripture is that the sea is always tumultuous. It's always chaos because you can never domesticate it. Right? So back then and likewise today, you can harness the land. You can blow up mountains. You can carve interstates and tunnels through them. Even today, where we are, like 150 years ago, this used to be prairie. And here we are on a somewhat green lot in a building near a river. We're able to harness that. We're able to get minerals and things out of the earth. But that's not the case with the sea. You can't do that with the ocean even today. Hurricanes will still come, and you can't stop them. And so you see that there is this chaos that man cannot harness. So what's the point? Well, the point is with here is that God is showing us is that he will put an end to the evil and the chaos. You see this foreshadowed in the Gospels in a really sweet way. And maybe you've never made this connection, but when it gets to uh, the, 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 the story of when the disciples are on the boat and the storm comes, and they look and they see Jesus walking on the water, like it's not just a cool trick that, man, I wish I could do that, but it's representing God's power over the sea, over the chaos. He can walk on it, and he can rebuke it, and it stops. And it's also pointing to Revelation chapter 21, when you see the new heavens and the new earth. It's really sweet, because at the beginning of the chapter, we see that the sea is no more. There's no more chaos. But what you see instead is the river of life that goes through the city of God, that gives life to the trees. It gives life to all of us. But then you also see this illustration of the vineyard. And this essentially is Eden restored. Because what you see is perfection. There's no evil. There's no serpent. There's no sin. Or as uh, what God's saying here, there's no thorns or briars and almost wishing like, if, if there were, then I would remove it. I would stomp it out. But it's peaceful. It's cared for by the Lord. But then what, what God does is he brings this focus to the present, or this side of eternity. And what he does is gets, he's, he's getting into this theme of redemption. And when we talk about redemption, I make the claim, and I think we would all make the claim, that it's something that we actually want. It's something that we actually crave, because it's in our stories. It's in our personal stories, but it's also in the stories that we see in the world today, in our culture You see that in movies, we see it in books, in TV, in documentaries. Um, More recently, um, you see this in the latest Star Wars movie. I know this is a big divisive topic, but because we have people in this uh, body who are on polar opposites on how valuable this movie is, (laughs) set it aside for the sake of the gospel, we'll be okay. But regardless of how you feel about it, there's a really sweet moment. And it, it's a moment that's been a, a kind of the overarching arc here. And part of this arc is devoted to the character Kylo Ren, who is essentially the, one of the evil figures in this film series, this new trilogy. Uh, 
we find out that he was at, when he was young, he was trained by Luke. And if you don't know Star Wars, sorry, but I'll try and explain as best I can. So he was trained to be good. He was trained to be a Jedi and use his uh, abilities with the Force for good in the galaxy. But what happened was is that he eventually gave into the dark side and then rose to a different place of power where he was literally killing millions of people. Pretty much everyone said that he was lost. That there was no hope for him, that he was long gone, that he essentially should be killed if that were ever to be put into um, a situation. But there were some who still hoped. Some were still hoping that he could turn, that he could actually uh, renounce his position in the dark side and go back to the light. And you see glimpses of that in the three movies. And it leads up into the final film where he's fighting Ray, who is the protagonist, and they're in a heated battle. And it culminates where Ray mortally wounds him and pretty much would be, he would be left to die if she had left. And what she does is she goes up to him, touches him, and he's healed. She, she goes and draws toward her enemy and heals the wound that otherwise would have killed him. And you see the expression on his face that he's baffled. He doesn't say anything. He's just in, in amazement of why she would want to do that. And then what you see happening for the rest of the film is that he ends up switching sides. He returns to the light and ends up sacrificing for Ray in order that she would live. It's a full circle picture and story. And I, I would say, regardless if we like Star Wars or not, that this is something that we want. Like, even watching the movie, there, you're, there's part of you that's thinking, it would be really sweet if he changed. And, and I would argue that's something that we want because, in the story, is because it's something that we want in our own lives. Because we need redemption. That though we haven't killed millions of people, we, we see ourselves in Kylo Ren's character. We want there to be some glimmer of hope for us. We want there to be some glimmer of hope for the world because if we see it in the media today, we don't really see that hope. We don't really see redemption. It's really hard to see in the world today for many reasons, but one reason that's really prominent today is what's called cancel culture. And maybe this is something you're well acquainted with, but as a definition, cancel culture is a form of boycott in which an individual who has shared a questionable or controversial opinion or has had behavior in their past that is perceived to be offensive. They are then shunned by former friends, followers, and supporters alike, leading to declines in any careers, opportunities, and the fan base, uh, in their fan base, and the individual may uh, and the fan base that they may have at individual times. So that all to say, dirt from the past is dug up, they are shamed, and essentially removed from their status. Shamed. So, beings that were from Iowa, or at least most of us, last fall we had the wonder to behold the Carson King debacle. 
Uh, some of you are familiar with that still. Some of you forgot just because of everything that's happened in the last few months. But essentially what it was is this college student, I think he was graduated at the time, uh, ESPN was at Iowa, Iowa State game. He had a sign saying, I need beer money, and had his Venmo uh, username on it. And people started giving him, like, a lot of money. And, it, I mean, it's growing and growing. Like, it got to, in the, like, the millions, like, up to three million, I think, total, um, from other organizations who were going to match him, which is, like, crazy. And it all started from that one stupid sign. It's too good to be true. What happened was, a reporter from the Des Moines Register uh, ended up finding uh, a tweet of his that was eight years old, and it had some offensive material, and he was quoting some, uh, I think it was Tosh.0. Uh, anyways, that gets brought to the surface. Uh, Carson King then comes forward, has a press conference, apologizes, but then you also see people, and Anheuser-Busch, who promised to uh, match, uh, withdraw support. Okay, that wasn't the end of the story. Then what happened was people started digging up dirt on the reporter who dug up dirt on him. And then the reporter ended up getting fired from the register. Then, <laughs> Ragbri, which is put on by the register, all of the Ragbri staff at the register left because of how the register handled the situation. And... They went and started their own Iowa bike race, which is what? Iowa Ride? Is that what it's called? Well, it's not happening this year anyway, so. So now Iowa has two bike races, <laughs> of which I've never been a part of, and who knows if I ever will. But, but all that to say is it's a constant back and forth, digging up dirt on different people and organizations. And this isn't just this local thing. Like, this is happening to celebrities. It's happening to common people. We see it in almost every news cycle, that, oh, this one comedian said something offensive two years ago, or this, this actor actually advocates for this weird thing, or this person has this one viewpoint. And we see people crumble. It's completely upheaved. People are losing jobs over it. People are losing relationships over it. And the hard thing is, is that people want justice, Right? Like, when we see people getting killed, like, there is a sense of justice that, that gets hit within us. And I know there, there's a lot of nuance that needs to go into these discussions about uh, specific situations, but I, as a whole, we do crave justice, right? When we see abuse happening, there's something in us that says, that's not right. But the problem is, if you take justice, and just that, and you elevate it, and focus on that more than uh, the rest of God's attributes, you end up losing sight and desire for redemption. Because we just want justice to be executed. We don't necessarily want to see things restored. We just want to see things changed. And I think especially with what we've seen in the last few months, forgiveness is a very hard thing to find. It's a very hard thing to find. 
Now, the thing is, when I, when I say all this, I'm not saying, oh, we should let these tweets slide or we should defend some of these things, but we have to see the lack of mercy and forgiveness. We have to see that there is something void here. It's an incomplete picture. And, and the, the greater problem is that this does not have an end. If it's left with itself, it doesn't have an end. Because every single one of us has dirt. Even Paul is saying in Romans 3 that there is no one righteous. Like, even if you were to go back to the Carson King thing, like, why didn't it go to Anheuser-Busch, who the beer manufacturer, plenty of people uh, drive drunk, or why didn't it go to Tosh.0, who was even putting out all this uh, content that was offensive? Or why didn't people go to, say, Jimmy Kimmel, who was speaking out against it, but yet, over a decade ago, who was leading the man show, which had its load <laughs> of material that would not see the light of day today? None of us are righteous but we are so quick to condemn, to not show mercy, to not have forgiveness. And we, we see it. We see how people walk on eggshells because they are afraid something is going to be dug up about them. People are going to point out something about them. I mean, when the Facebook, uh, what is it, not the time lapse, but the memories thing first started, and I saw a lot of things that I said back in 2008, 2009. You best believe I deleted some of that. Because it, one, I wasn't a Christian then, but also two, like, that's not who I am. Right? And I would be more than willing to admit to you some of the things that I said. Maybe not this, a microphone that's going on a podcast, but, <laughs> but I don't just want it sit, like, just out there. But we see it in ourselves. We walk on eggshells. We... we See, just in society, the, how, the propensity of destruction. But we see what we do, right? But now in the, the text, what does God do? In verse 6 and 8, he's, he's talking about the ways that he treated his people, the way that he treated Jacob. But then you get to verse 9. Therefore, after talking about, you know, removing them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind, therefore, by this, by this, what does that mean? So he's referring to the way he dealt with them compared to other nations, other people. He's saying he disciplined them, but he's still caring for them in a very special and specific way. So if you look through the Old Testament, you see it in the Exodus, you see it in the wilderness where he constantly was blessing his people even though they were um, going against him, worshiping other gods. We see that in the judges where man went and did whatever it seemed right to him and God would raise up leaders who would deliver them. He's treating them in a very specific way. So what is, that's what he does, but what does he see? God sees us. God knows the, the things that we tweeted years ago. And if we don't have a Twitter, God sees and knows the things that we said years ago that maybe we even forgot about now. 
But God really sees those things that haven't been dug up yet by other people that we know about. But he also knows every single thought that has gone through our minds, every intention, every thought that was about destroying our fellow brothers and sisters. The things that we couldn't imagine being broadcasted to the world. Like if I was preaching here and those things of mine were listed on that screen, it would be horrifying. Yet God knowing that still shows grace toward us. and Still shows patience toward us. Like for the nation of Israel, his people, they saw the miracles. Like, how crazy would that be to see essentially a tornado by day leading them through the wilderness and a pillar of fire by night? The presence of the Lord, yet still doubting. And yet God still gives them Manna. He still gives them food. He still gives them water. And he's not giving up on his promise to take them to the promised land. Or you look at the disciples. Constant doubt. Constant questioning. Constant selfishness getting intertwined within Jesus' ministry. Yet he still saves them. He still equips them and sends them out to plant churches. Christians, us, the variety of ways that we have experienced the goodness of God, yet we still go back to hating people. We still go back to loathing those who are different than us and not seeing people as image bearers of God depending on their political preference. God is still gracious. God is still doing something here. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, he says, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on the earth. How does he do this? It's the cross. That's the place where it's all united, where it all overlaps where we see God's justice, but also where we see God's grace and His sovereignty and His wisdom and His love toward us. And He sheds His blood, family, for you and me, so that we would no longer require it of others and ourselves. There's no atonement that we can make for ourselves. There's no atonement that other people can make for us. Only Jesus. And he not only sheds his blood for us, is that he also removes the sin. 
He removes that weight of condemnation from us. All of it. And he places it upon himself. And you think in the moment where all at once Jesus sees every single sin of all of his children. How horrifying would that be for us to see? Yet Jesus stays. He stays on the cross. Where people mock him and say, come down off the cross if you were God. But he stays to prove that he's God. Because he's doing something that we would never imagine someone else doing for us. Or even us doing for someone else. And it doesn't stay or doesn't stop with just his saving work. It overflows into fruit. It's not just his redeeming grace, it's also his transforming grace. It goes into fruit and it bears in our lives. And it looks like new worship, a new way of life. Go back to verse 9. It says, Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all of the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. The old altars of worship that we would make sacrifices, that we would give our lives to, are torn down. That's the fruit. So for you and me, Christians, What that looks like is that those things are put to death. The way of life is changed, and we have to be really upfront with ourselves and with each other that we cannot live the same way in which we once did. As tempting as it might be, as prevalent even as it might be right now, we cannot keep living this way because that old life is incompatible with Christ. Things need to be torn down and cleared. So whether it's your pride, and actually let's just focus on the pride. Like the way that you have your perceived value above yourself and the way that you see it's greater than other people, that you have the right opinions on the issues, that you make the right decisions in your job and your bosses suck, you make the right choices and decisions in your family functions, You can make the proper judgments against race issues. You can. You can make uh, proper judgments when it comes to LGBT issues about your bad bosses. But you rarely, if ever, apply it to yourself. You rarely, if ever, question yourself in figuring out whether you're actually in line with Christ. Whether you're actually obedient to Him and and humbled before Him. We have to remember who we are apart from Him. Or who we were apart from Him. Lost, broken, without a family, without guidance, without wisdom, without love, without grace, without patience, without mercy. And to remember now who we are in Him. We have those things in Him. And when we see when 
we experience that redemption, when we experience the call into life, we have to see what Jesus is doing right now in our lives. And bluntly, he's cleaning up shop. There's a lot of dirt that needs to be cleaned up. And he's cleaning up shop because your pride cannot cohabitate with the Spirit. And maybe it's because our expectations are too low. Maybe our expectations for what what God is supposed to do or is going to do in our lives is just way too low for whatever reason. C.S. Lewis speaks into this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Because it's not just Jesus taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, but it's God also giving us his spirit to reside, to dwell within, to guide us, to lead us, to teach us. And the old life and new life cannot cohabitate. God is doing something in you and me that is beyond our expectations. Paul's prayer at the end of Romans 3 hits on that. The God who exceeds all of our expectations, may he abundantly provide. And what what even Paul is talking about in Romans 12, that we are living sacrifices. That we now are the ones who make the sacrifices upon the altar. The altar of our lives. Giving everything because of what Jesus gave for us. This is the way of life, the Spirit in us. But then what we see in the text, this last chunk, is that it brings us back to a future vision. In that day, going back to the last day, we see in verse 12, God's people gathered. It's a future reality. We see this also in Revelation 5, where we see representatives from every tribe, tongue, in nation represented around the throne, singing the praises of God. It's beautiful. Uh, I don't think we can even comprehend the magnitude of that. But it's the truth. It's the future. But then what he says, God says here in verse 13, is very interesting. Where he says, Those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. What you notice, or what you need to notice here, God could have said a number of different nations, but he said Assyria and Egypt. 
in the course of the timeline of God's people, those were the worst enemies. The people most opposed to the Lord. He's going to bring people out of those nations to Jerusalem, to his holy city, to fall on their faces and to love him and to worship him. And God is making a statement here that directly applies to us that no one is beyond his reach. No one is, be, is beyond saving. And we see this in other places in the Old Testament too. We see that God's going to save people from the Philistines. And that's one of the first places they go in the book of Acts. We see people from Babylon. People from Rome. From Greece. Who turn to the Lord. And this really feeds into what Jonah says. At the end, the book of Jonah. And this is after Jonah preaches the shortest and most effective sermon in the history of sermons. Like the whole point of the book was God calling him to go to Nineveh, which is Assyria. And Jonah doesn't want to see that happen because he has beef with Assyria for what we would see as very good reasons. Anyways, God brings him back through that whole story. And at the end, Jonah has dialogue with the Lord. And he says this, That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which is the complete opposite end of the known world. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He didn't want to see Nineveh saved, but God wanted to see Nineveh saved. Regardless of the terrible things they did to Israel, regardless of the things they did to other nations and to themselves, God wanted to see them saved, and God made it happen. So then, (laughs) What does that look like now? Because Nineveh isn't around anymore. Israel's not the same anymore. Egypt is not the same anymore. For us, we know the gospel goes out. Jesus has given us that command. And he's given us the spirit to empower us to see that come to fruition. And we have to see that in tandem with Isaiah uh, 27, verse 6. He says, In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Fill the whole world. It means the gospel goes out. And so for us, we need to see it in front of us and determine and understand who is Egypt to us. Who is Assyria to us? 
the people, essentially, the last people who we would bring the gospel to in our life for whatever reason. Just think about who that would be. People group. That's who it is. And God is bringing you to them. Is God not mighty to save? Is God not able to redeem wicked people? Is God not able to heal broken people? So what God is calling for us is to step out in faith in light of what he's done for centuries and what he's done in the life of the church, to step out in faith when it does not make sense, when you do not have the words to say, go. And the Spirit will bring words to say. And what happens then? Hopefully, our pride will be removed and diminished because we're going to have to humble ourselves before the Lord. We will see people transformed. I'm confident of that. If we're faithful to what God is calling us to do, we will see transformation. And we will see God glorified because when we see, I think, at least referencing from ourselves, when we see the most wicked people Redeemed, saved, that amplifies glory given to God. They, they just think about that. Would, wouldn't that amp you up if you were to see our political officials like genuinely repent? Wouldn't it be crazy? Wouldn't it amplify the glory of God if you saw Barack Obama and Donald Trump have fellowship together and be united by Jesus? The people who maybe you would see as the furthest from the, from the Lord. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. And so we need to see that as a possibility for what God is doing in our lives. We need to see that as a possibility for those people that we will not pursue, that we've been neglecting for years. No one is too far gone. That's the hope in God's redemption. No one is too far gone. And so with that, let's respond. So we're going we're gonna to give you some time to pray, to sort through this with you and the Lord for Him to continue to reveal things to you. Things that need to get checked. Things that need to change. People that you need to serve. People that you need to actually reach out to in love. And ask the Lord, how would you have me do it? And we're going to give you an opportunity to partake in communion. And so if you didn't, we have those uh, single serving cups out there at the door. And when we do that, we remember the redemption of God. The price that Jesus paid for us. And so if you're a Christian, we ask that you partake in that with us. But if not, abstain. Don't worry about it. But church, we remember. 
We remember His love. We remember His grace. His body broken. His blood spilled for us. And then from that, let's turn from those things that have been calling for our attention that we've been bowing down to and turn to the Lord and sing. Proclaim His grace. Proclaim His love for us and for those who are still lost. Let's long for that. Let's contend for that together. Let's fight for joy for that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. God, would we see the depths of our sins that have robbed us of so much joy, that, have, that has brought division to relationships, that has brought destruction to our families, to our neighborhoods, So Lord, we ask that Your Spirit will come and fill us, transform our ways of thinking, our minds, to tear down those strongholds. The things that we hold dear that are actually in opposition to You. Jesus, we want You. We want You to build your church. We want you to exceed our expectations of what you would do in a pandemic, in, in a time of social distancing, in a time of upheaval. God, this is not beyond you. You are over this. So in this time, Lord, raise our expectations for what the gospel can do. Raise our expectations for what we could see you do in our lives today. Raise our expectations for what we would see you do in this community, on campus, in our jobs, in the hospitals, in the grocery stores, at the gas stations, in the least places, the least of places where we would expect anything to happen. Lord, would you move in power? Would you wake us up? Wake us to your glory. Wake us to your love. Lord, we want to be faithful, but we know it comes through challenge. So Lord, bring the challenge today, but also bring the power. For apart from you, we cannot do any of your commands. We cannot share the gospel apart from you moving. We need you, Lord. So would you provide and exceed every need in us today? We love you and we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.